his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. The threads of our democratic fabric are fraying. They're being pulled by extremists who seem intent on tearing it apart. The political rhetoric we've heard in the past is getting angrier and more apocalyptic and the words are being weaponized into action. The stakes were raised with the FBI's raid on former President Trump's home in Florida. Then the fury and threats exploded online. They led to real-world violence. With the former president himself confirming that the FBI has executed a search warrant on his home in Palm Beach, Florida today, he said in a statement that his beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, of course, which became his primary residence after he left the White House, is, quote, currently under siege, raided and occupied by a large number of FBI agents. What we've confirmed through our sources here at CBS News is that FBI agents seized a limited number of boxes and papers during the course of the raid. We were told they did not take electronic devices with them and that some of the records that were seized contained some element of classified information. Tonight, CBS News has confirmed the suspect killed during yesterday's attempted breach of an FBI field office in Ohio was known to investigators before the attack. We're also learning more about the violent political rhetoric that may have inspired him. This week, Trump supporters have taken to social media to criticize the Justice Department's actions. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called the FBI search the weaponization of federal agencies against the regime's political opponents. Congressman Paul Gosar wrote, we must destroy the FBI. A Mercer County man is accused of making vile threats against the FBI. Today, a federal grand jury in Pittsburgh indicted 46-year-old Adam Bies. The indictment says Bies posted threats on social media to murder, injure, and assault FBI agents in the days after the search of Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. We see how the ideas and the threats and the language online result in blood in the streets. One of the great enablers of violence is narratives that allow you to kind of dehumanize or devalue the other party. This week on 880 In-Depth, how real is the threat of political violence or even civil war? What's causing it and what can we do about it? Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Steve Scott. The threats are no longer theoretical. A man in Cincinnati was killed after trying to breach the FBI office there. And this follows the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol that led to more than 100 injuries and multiple deaths. The crisis is being driven by domestic extremists, and it seems to be getting worse. Extremists need polarization 
anger and chaos in order to thrive. And that's why they talk in terms of civil war, because it's the fantasy that they have and the fantasy that they recognize they are trying to make real. Political violence in the United States is nothing new. Think about the Weather Underground and other radical groups in the 1960s and 70s. But the biggest difference is the ability for people to operate in online spaces in concentrated echo chambers and to spread their, you know, lies and false narratives and have audiences in which that is the primary way that they are understanding the world. I think the last few years have shown us that democracy is not always a given and needs to be re- reaffirmed. A little bit later, we'll hear from Noreen Chowdhury Fink at the Sufan Center. We have the vitriol, we have the polarization, we have the really incendiary narratives from senior politicians and political figures, and we have access to guns and a kind of legitimization of that use. But let's start with Oren Siegel. He's vice president of the Extremism Center at the Anti-Defamation League. He tracks online hate and their real-world consequences. He tells WCBS reporter Peter Haskell about what he has been seeing. After the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, we saw angry people on social media uh, basically describing what occurred as a call to arms. Uh, These are pro-Trump extremists. These are extremists of all kinds who essentially felt that, you know, their leader, somebody that they support, um, was being uh, trampled on by a tyrannical government, by the FBI, the Department of Justice, and essentially encouraged violence uh, and pushback against uh, the, the, the folks that were responsible. At the same time, though, we also saw how some elected officials and pundits were also doubling down on their opposition to the search that happened. And so, as we have seen in the past, the extreme fringes and some of the other public discussion um, were consistent with each other, which is always very scary. In terms of the, the volume of the online calls for violence and things like that, and the tenor of the conversation of the posts, it, was that different than we've seen in the past? You know, you spend enough time in extremist spaces online, you will see a massive volume of hatred, of incitement to violence, etc. What made this a little bit different was that so many of the folks uh, and these online sort of spaces in which this hatred and, and violence was incubating was directed so clearly at the FBI, right? So we have seen anti-government expressions, anti-law enforcement expressions, those are not new. Um, But the explicit calls for violence, um, you know, were worrying, and especially when the names of individual FBI agents were released who were part of the search, you know, people encouraging them to threaten their families, et cetera, that was something that, you know, we've seen before, but not quite to this level. So there's talk about potential violence, and there's talk about, you know, they were posting about this violence, and then there's action. We saw someone shot and killed after trying to attack an FBI office in Cincinnati. There was someone else who was arrested for threatening the FBI. 
Is is that something that's unusual that people are actually taking action? Um, I think what is unusual are the actions that we're seeing targeting FBI offices in Cincinnati, or you know these threats where individuals are arrested, for example, in Pennsylvania. The idea, though, that the invective online, the hatred coupled with the incitement to violence would somehow animate what's happening on the ground, that should not come as a surprise to anybody. We have seen this play out uh, many, many times, right? Hatred against the Jewish community in online spaces resulted in attacks in Poway and Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, hatred against other communities in this country have resulted in a series of violent incidents that were incubated in online spaces. You know, the idea that we can't trace what happens online to real world activity um, is no longer a valid uh, um, sort of idea. All too many times we see how the ideas and the threats and the language online results in blood in the streets. It's interesting. There was a recent report that came out that showed that and has estimated 20 million Republicans and 10 million Democrats support political violence. So a couple of questions for you. How did we get here and what do we do about it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is the what they used to call the $64,000 question and really the million dollar question. You know, it, how did we get to a point? where the rhetoric that is on fringe online platforms is being echoed in our public discussion by our elected officials, where violence is actually viewed as a legitimate form of opposition and not something to be you know, clearly and consistently dismissed. Um, I think part of it is the online discussions that have occurred where we have seen hatred and violence sort of normalized, become sort of a, a standard way that people communicate, certainly in those spaces. I also think we've seen a failure of leadership of, you know, individual elected officials and others who have, you know, tried to appeal to their base or to their supporters by showing just how extreme they are. You know, back in the day when somebody would, you know, incite violence or, or even, you know, refuse to condemn it, there were consequences. Today, it doesn't seem like there are the type of consequences that you would think when somebody is enabling these types of movements from spreading their hate. So now what? What do we do about this? Well, I think it's, it's always important, you know, especially at times of, of heightened concerns and threats, um, to realize that we're not hopeless. One, it's not unreasonable for people who use these various social media platforms to demand that those platforms do more to prevent the exploitation of those services, right? Flagging items that are inciting violence um, in, in hopes that you know, these companies take them down. Um, another thing is holding our elected officials accountable, right? If they are not gonna speak out against violence and in fact, in some ways encourage it, people need to make their voice heard and say that is unacceptable. Um, I also think that, you know, we spend a lot of time in this society right now pointing fingers at, you know, the other side. And, you know, if people looked internally and tried to have conversations with those maybe that they voted for, 
or those in their family and said, you know, we need you to not act this way. I know that that's hard, but more people will listen if you feel like you're part of their cohort rather than, you know, the other side of the aisle pointing fingers. But, you know, I don't know if that's possible, but we can always be hopeful. You talk about holding elected officials accountable. It seems like instead of elected officials leading and saying, no, 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 you've crossed the line, they are following the lead of their constituents. So people seem to be voting for officials who are using this rhetoric and this language. How do we deal with that? It's true. I mean, we have seen some elected officials who seem to, if not explicitly support you know, some of the calls for violence we're seeing online, um, have, have you know, created an atmosphere in which they are sort of demonizing the FBI and demonizing our democratic institutions. Um, I would note that this is not particularly new in the sense that much of this language is exactly what led us to an insurrection on our Capitol on January 6th. And to some degree, yes, people are deciding um, that this language from our elected officials is appealing to them. Um, that being said, you know, I think there's still space to use those same vehicles, whether it's media or social media, to clearly and consistently reject those who seek to normalize violence. In fact, maybe that's the only thing that can be done, but I think just remaining silent and accepting this um, is not something that anybody wants to do. Siegel thinks a big part of the problem is a loss of trust in institutions. That could be the Justice Department in general, the FBI specifically, and the media. You know, I, I hate to ever kind of concede or, or suggest that extremists have been successful, but you know, if we look at how disinformation and conspiracy theories um, and militancy um, has been normalized over the past several years to the point where people are more um, suspicious of our democratic institutions, of our leaders, I mean, those, that's exactly the environment in which extremism and violent extremism in particular, um, you know, spreads. And so, you know, what we need to do is recognize that this is not normal, right? That there are um, opportunities for people in their own community, with their own family members, in the social media spaces that they exist, to say this does not represent us. This does not reflect our beliefs. There are still people that reject violence and reject hatred, but are there fewer of those people now? You no, know, it's a fair question, you know, at a time where our law enforcement agencies are uh, feeling like they're under attack, where it's harder to know what, you know, truth is from fact, because people are intentionally creating disinformation to confuse and incite. Um, you know, I understand that there's this kind of idea that maybe there's more of, you know, hateful people out there. Um, but I will just tell you, you can't do the work that I do, monitoring extremism and hate, with actually without having a healthy dose of hope. So I do see that, you know, in the wake of terrible incidents that occur or violent threats that people get, I do see people speaking out against it, rejecting that notion. 
And I think it's about amplifying those voices more. So yes, there is hate, there is extremism. We are in a very complicated moment in this country, but we need to find the truth tellers, those whose voices are about calm and about rejecting hate and amplify them. If people try, they will find those voices. There was something that I read about uh, posts, Twitter posts about civil war, 500 Mm -hmm. posts an hour prior to the search of Mar-a-Lago, 500 posts an hour, 15,000 posts an hour about civil war after that search. So people talk about civil war. Is that a hyperbole? What should we take from take from this? Well, you know, those who seek to, you know, further polarize our society or, you know, extremists never miss an opportunity to either create or leverage a crisis. So, you know, when a former president of the United States has his home searched by the FBI, it creates a convenient narrative for those people who believe in other conspiracy theories or who are inclined to discuss, you know, the tyrannical government or those that already support so many of the conspiracies that not only the former president, but the online spaces they operate in have, you know, uh, 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 normalized over time. And so, you know, civil war is a term that has been used by anti-government extremists, white supremacists and others for several years, right? They are hoping that the conditions in this country get so bad that they are able to essentially force a civil war. For them, that chaos um, is an opportunity for them to reach, recruit, and radicalize new people, right? For them to expand their ranks. Extremists need polarization, anger, and chaos in order to thrive. And that's why they talk in terms of civil war, because it's the fantasy that they have and the fantasy that they recognize they are trying to make real in order for them to, you know, move forward on their agenda. Political violence isn't new in this country. In the 60s and 70s, there was a certain amount of that. How is this different or similar? I mean, I think the big difference between political violence today um, and what it was in the past is where the ideas and narratives and messages that influence people to political violence are coming from, right? So certainly you have certain elected officials or public officials who, you know, are, you know, inciting violence or at, at, at to some degree, um, you know, normalizing the types of conspiracies cast doubt on our democratic institutions. That exists. And in our media, you know, you have Um, people who are doubling down on these conspiracy theories about stolen elections or, you know, insurrections that allegedly didn't happen. You know, we see this on Fox News and elsewhere. But the biggest difference is the ability for people to operate in online spaces in concentrated echo chambers and to spread their, you know, lies and false narratives and have audiences in which that is the primary way that they are understanding the world, right? That this is not something that they are getting legitimate news and alternative news. They are getting very directed, specific disinformation intended to influence them. 
How do you think this plays out over the coming months, for the coming years? This this level of vitriol, this level of uh, a call for violence. What do you think? Listen, I, I I've been monitoring extremist movements, and certainly in the past couple of years, long enough to not be naive to think that the threats that we have seen against uh, law enforcement elected officials, journalists, minority communities, that's not all of a sudden going to go away. That's going to be with us for a while. The question is, how do we mitigate those narratives? How do we create boundaries and friction so that those narratives are influencing less people, animating less people to action? And this is where I think constantly providing perspective on what's happening, reminding people that this is not normal that this is not okay, demanding accountability, whether it's from law enforcement, whether it's from our media, whether it's whatever it is, we need to constantly push back because the stakes are too high not to. And that means that every individual has a role to play, that you know, the idea of watching this from the sidelines is just not an option. And doesn't mean everybody has to be a warrior. You know, what this means is something as simple, if somebody sees hatred or incitement to violence in an online space that they're in, they should report that. That's the one thing everybody can do. If they see something, they can say something. That's what my subway in New York tells me every day. But there is something to that. Um, And that way, the more that we amplify uh, and alert people to the data of what's happening, data drives policy. The more that we could potentially find solutions. And then lastly, we need some courage. We need some courage in this country, and that needs to become an expectation and not an afterthought. The courage to speak out against those who want to normalize violence and hate. This is all about creating division and sowing the seeds of chaos. I'm Noreen Chadray-Fink. I'm the executive director of the Supan Center, which is a nonprofit organization focused on research, strategic dialogue, and, and policy Um, strategic security policy and and governance. Fink studies political instability and similar issues. In the aftermath of the search of Mar-a-Lago, a study found 15,000 Twitter posts an hour citing threats of civil war. That compared to 500 threats an hour just a few days before. The threats we're seeing are really a symptom of this almost unprecedented levels of polarization that we are seeing in the country and a narrative that has really pitted, uh, you know, two supposed sides against each other. And, you know, the FBI in in performing its lawful function and and following the rule of law has now been identified as an other, you know, as as an establishment that is um, sort of the target of what we are seeing increasingly anti-establishment, anti-authority, anti-government violent extremism. Um, You know, what we've seen in conflicts around the world and historically, that one of the great enablers of violence is narratives that allow you to kind of dehumanize or devalue the other party, right? And that's certainly what we've been seeing uh, in terms of the narratives playing out in this country, that um, the establishment, the government, you know, um, is seen very much as certainly the current administration by 
the sort of extreme um, elements um, in, on, on the Republican side as the enemy. The narrative has very much delegitimized um, the government, which is, it, it's different from a political difference, right? It's not that you disagree only on policy. It's that the narrative uh, coming out of that, um, the threats against the FBI, and certainly in, in terms of questioning, you know, the election validity and the insurrection it's actually delegitimizing democracy and the, the government itself. So, you know, once these narratives take hold, um, the the threshold of violence is often not far behind, and that's certainly what we're seeing here today. What's the risk then, and how real is the threat? I mean, I think the threat, we've already seen people willing to take action. Um, against, you know, FBI officers and, and take up arms. We've heard of threats, um, you know, credible threats to governors, to state officials who were involved in the elections. Um, we, we, you know, we've heard about that threat to, you know, kidnap a governor. So I think these are very uh, clear and present dangers and threats and linking it to a very different incident, you know, the the stabbing of Salman Rushdie. I mean, the perpetrator barely read his book, is too young to remember the initial calls, you know, by the government of Iran to uh, to kill Rushdie. And yet, you know, almost 25 years later, that narrative lingered and, and fueled this act of violence and intolerance. So, I think that um, the threat is very real, and it, it's hard to predict because as these narratives take hold and this kind of polarization becomes normalized and this kind of violent extremism is mainstreamed, um, it's hard to predict the kinds of um, inspirational uh, value it has. Should we just accept that this is now part of the political landscape in this country? Uh, I, I would be very depressed if we accepted that as a norm. You know, we have seen massive sweeping changes in short periods. You know, um, I, you know, thinking about the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, that five-year period was a massive change in the way we see the world and talk about each other. I, I remain optimistic that we can do so again. You know, we don't have to accept it the way we are. Because, you know, we've been discussing how narratives and actions really kind of fuel um, further movements. You know, so if, if individuals can change narratives, if there are checks and balances on the incitement to violence, if there is a return to polit real democratic political pluralism, which is... It, there are, you know, there is agency. Politicians have agency. They have a responsibility to foster that in government, and citizens have a responsibility to vote accordingly. So I, I don't accept that things, you know, as bad as they are, have to be this way. But what I do feel, um, and what we've seen, is that certainly in this country we have opportunities for change that we really must take. This is driven by misinformation and disinformation online. There's a question about how much of it comes from inside the U.S. and how much comes from outside. The long story short is it's a mix, right? There, in, in most areas of life, we are increasingly siloed in the kind of information we get. So to begin with, 
social media and algorithms um, and the, the way we communicate already puts us often into an echo chamber. So even if it's not misinformation or disinformation, the first risk is that you are always in an echo chamber because that's what the algorithm determines, what you're interested in, who your like-minded peers are, and that's the kind of social online world you tend to operate in and the kind of information you get. Um, and then it becomes much easier to work with disinformation and misinformation, right? Because you can recast information, you can uh, edit things so that there's a tremendous amount of misinformation. And then there's outright disinformation. And we've seen how easy it is to doctor things. You study political instability. Do you see signs that the U.S. is uh, on the path to autocracy? And, and how does that play out? Um, I think the last few years have shown us that democracy is not always a given and needs to be re reaffirmed all the time, right? So I wouldn't say we're on a path to autocracy, but I think we are certainly hearing risks are very real. We are, you know, we're one election away from a an autocracy if, you know, if the... Uh, if the outcome that former President Trump would have wanted out of this election, if some of those outcomes he was asking for uh, would have happened, we would be in a very different election environment right now. And it, you know, many of us would not see that, I think, as a legitimate election. And let's not forget the tremendous access to guns in this country, um, which makes it you know, very much an outlier from other countries that we have the vitriol, we have the polarization, we have the really incendiary narratives from senior politicians and political figures, and we have access to guns and a kind of legitimization of that use. So I think this is a very dangerous inflection moment. How do we turn the tide and how difficult will that be? I I, I wish I had an easy answer. You know, the the tide is the you know, in our country supposed to be turned through democratic elections. That's where you take the, the views of the people and you affect an administration that reflects that. Um, so I think there we have a long road ahead. It's, it, it's hard to answer that in one sentence, a mix of regulation, a mix of um, education, like political education, media literacy. Um, and I think with also politicians taking some responsibility for having got us to this place on all sides, there needs to be some measure of political reconciliation or political engagement that we haven't seen yet. Former Vice President Mike Pence has called for an end to threats against the FBI. We'll see if others on the right start to dial back their incendiary rhetoric. <laughs> That's it for 880 In-Depth this week. The executive producers are Tim Scheld and Peter Haskell. Thanks to our guests, Oren Siegel and Noreen Chowdhury-Fink. 880 In-Depth gives us a chance to dig into significant issues. You can find us at WCBS880.com, the Odyssey app, or wherever you get your audio. And please subscribe. I'm Steve Scott. Thank you for listening. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi -ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. 
But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, Mom and Dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.